The Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. Chapter Two, Good Deed Quagmire. Retracing his path up Federal Street, the people were not milling around on the sidewalks any longer. Instead, the scene resembled a heavy evening rush. People wore coats, carried bags, all walking briskly. Some had worried expressions. Most looked annoyed at the interruption of their routine. The triangle of streets where Pearl, Milk, and Congress joined at Post Office Square was more of a challenge to cross. The stalled traffic was a chaotic jumble. A T-bus, blocked in mid-turn, formed an effective dam for the flow of traffic on Pearl and Milk. Cars continued to try to come up out of the underground parking garage, but there was no open street to absorb them. One impatient driver from the parking garage decided to drive his big BMW along the wide sidewalk in an attempt to bypass the motionless traffic. Pedestrians jumped out of his way. The driver in a neon blue Corolla with skirts and spoiler must have seen the BMW and thought the sidewalk was a good idea. The Corolla bumped up onto the sidewalk, trying to get ahead of the BMW, only to get one wheel up before bottoming out on the curb. Martin guessed that the Corolla was not the driver's usual car, or he would not have tried such a move. Lowered tuners and granite curbs do not mix well. The BMW driver veered around the beached Corolla, but this forced him to the left of a cast-iron lamppost that stood in the middle of the sidewalk. He must have thought he could get around it. He was wrong. With a fingernails on blackboard scraping and a crunch, he had only managed to get his shiny black car wedged between the lamppost and atop a granite planter. It was his turn to be beached. His front wheel spun uselessly in the flower bed, flinging up mulch and shreds of mums. The pedestrians who had to jump out of his way a few moments earlier kicked or pounded on his car as they climbed through the planter to get around him. A few of them threw dirt on his car and yelled hostile sentiments about equality and justice. Once Martin had made his way through the traffic maze at Post Office Square, the northbound side of Congress was smoother going. Fewer cross streets meant less weaving through stall traffic. The cooperative spirit was no longer present at the intersection of state and Congress. It was yet another jumbled parking lot. Martin preferred to cross in front of cars whose drivers were standing beside their cars, yelling and gesturing. Drivers behind the wheel were prone to sudden lurching forward if they saw an opening. On the north side of the intersection, the threads of pedestrians reformed back into a thick column, marching down Congress. In contrast to the steady flow of pedestrians, a couple of dozen people stood in front of the doors of the State Street T-stop. Among them, Martin saw a familiar face. Susan looked up and down State Street with a mild frown. Hey, hi again. Martin gave a small wave to catch her eye. What's up? Oh, hi. Her face brightened a little. You know, Martin said, it's kind of strange seeing you outside of the bank. Are you off work now? Yeah, Mr. Skinner closed the branch a little bit ago and told us to go home for the rest of the day. I usually take the orange line, she pointed behind her at the T-stop doors. But not now. I got as far down as the turnstiles, but it was pitch black beyond that. The tea's not running. Some people keep coming up from the platform that say there's still trains down there, but they're stuck back in the tunnels. They could hear voices, but they couldn't see anything. 
Kind of makes sense that the tea isn't running, Martin said, being electric and all. Yeah, I guess so. But now I'm looking for other ways home. I was going to try to take a cab, she continued. But look at this traffic. Even if I could find an empty cab, which I haven't, you couldn't get anywhere. So what are you going to do? Walk, I guess. Where I live in Somerville takes about an hour to walk. I walk to work several times in the summer. What about you? On your way home, too? She pointed to his bag. Uh, yes, I'm on my way up to North Station to see if I can catch a train. Sounds like we're both walking north. Okay if I walk with you, at least as far as North Station? Sure. A small smile erased the last of her worried expression. They merged onto the northbound flow of pedestrians headed down Congress. Man, said Martin, there are a ton of people out here. I've never seen the sidewalk so full. Is this what rush hour is like every day? Maybe I'd just leave before it gets like this. No, this is the worst I've seen it. With all these crazy heads bobbing up and down, Martin said, I feel like I'm floating on a river downstream, some sort of whitewater river of heads. Susan tapped Martin's arm to direct his attention to the left. Bet that's why there's so many people here. Look, they've got the sidewalk closed in front of City Hall. Everyone's got to be on this side of the street. Behind the lines of white sawhorses and yellow tape stood nervous city cops in regular uniforms. A few men wore helmets, face shields, and full black tactical gear, their hands on the grips of black ARs hanging from monopoints. They reminded Martin of the nervous cops back on 9-11, but this time they were much more heavily armed. The scene around City Hall looked peculiar and set Martin's mind to musing. The massive concrete building always did look like a postmodern fortress, with its tall concrete walls and slit windows. Now it had a cleared perimeter, protected by a ring of armed guards. City bureaucrats inside could rest easy, knowing they were safe. But safe from what? It did seem odd that in the face of a possible crisis, local government's first response was to rush into their bunkers and protect themselves. Did they fear that Boston would quickly devolve into riots and looting, like L.A., Ferguson, or Baltimore? Years ago, city employees used to be called civil servants. With this outage, the people's civil servants were more intent on hiding behind concrete than being servants. Were local officials afraid that terrorists had staged a blackout as cover for kidnapping a city councilman, the registrar of deeds, or the parking clerk? Weird about the blackout, huh? Susan interrupted Martin's musing. What? Yeah, oh yeah, it's kind of a big one this time. Oh, I haven't heard much news about it. We were all too busy closing out our drawers and stuff, so we didn't hear much. My boss, Brian, heard on his radio that it's not just Boston, or even just the Northeast. This time it's Chicago, L.A., and other cities too, like even London. Really? Weird. What's London got to do with us? That's the odd part. When we had our last big blackout, it turned out to be some petty mechanical failure and a bit of dumb human error, you know, that made the northeast power grid collapse like a house of cards. We're kind of used to that happening, right? Ice storms, leftover hurricanes, it doesn't take much. The cards fall pretty easy. We're used to that. I guess, but what's the odd part? The odd part is that Chicago went dark, too. And other parts of the grid, like Chicago's or Atlanta's, were unaffected when we went dark. They aren't as connected to us. This time, though, it's not just our card house. It was like all of them. 
The usual dopey failure in one area shouldn't make all of the card houses fall at the same time. The human river slowed down to a quagmire near the Haymarket tea stop. A sizable crowd of frustrated would-be subway riders blocked the sidewalk, spilling out into the street. Angry drivers honked at them, although no one was going anywhere. Traffic on Sudbury Street, as it crossed Congress, was impassable. The cars were literally bumper to bumper. The slow river of pedestrians had met an automotive dam. Yet more cars lined up in the parking garage's exit ramps, waiting for a gap in the traffic, which never appeared. It seemed like all of them were trying to out-honk each other. Susan threw up her arms. This is crazy. There isn't even room to walk between the cars now. Why are they doing this? It's not like being twelve inches closer gets them home any faster. Martin glanced at the many scowling drivers. Maybe they're just all jealous of us pedestrians. If they can't get anywhere, maybe they figure nobody should. Kind of a dark side of equality. Well, that's just silly. I mean, come on. Martin interrupted. Oh, look over there. See that W.B. Mason truck? Come on, I got an idea. They pushed through the crowd and headed to the back of the truck. Just like I thought, he said. A lift gate, little ladders, handles, and a deck. We have a bridge. He helped her climb up and across the deck. The driver immediately behind the truck honked loud and long. He edged the long snout of his silver infinity beneath the truck. It was a futile gesture. Martin and Susan were walking across the liftgate deck above his car. The driver silently shouted inside his chrome and glass box. He gestured vulgarities and to add visuals to his disapproval. When several other pedestrians followed Martin up onto the liftgate, the angry Infinity driver got out and pulled a man off the ladder. Mr. Infinity was intent to stop such flagrant cheating. A disorganized brawl developed. Man, I'm glad people are handling this outage like mature adults, Martin said. They sidestepped between a few more cars and quickly left the brawl behind. Passage under Government Center parking garage was going slow. Thick crowds swarmed toward the various stairwell doors. Martin considered the irony of them all struggling to get to their cars, only to be unable to get them out of the garage. Driving home was probably their only plan, so they were acting on it. The last time we had a big blackout, said Susan, the power was out for two days at my apartment. Do you think the power will be back on soon? Tomorrow, maybe? I sure hope so. I don't know. This sounds like it's a bigger problem than last time. Is there something special about tomorrow? Susan's brow furrowed. I was supposed to take my test tomorrow. Test? Yes. I've been a teller for six months now. It's okay, but the pay is low. Then Katie had her baby, which created an opening for an associate. I've been studying for a couple of months, but cramming hard ever since Katie left. Whoa, studying for a couple of months? Is this associate's test like the bar exam? Oh, no. The test itself is pretty minor. It just covers the bank's various products and services. No big deal. Uh, then where does a couple of months of studying come in? Susan shrugged. It's kind of complicated. Martin glanced at the crowded street. Well, it looks like we've got time. Well, I suppose. Well, it's like this. In order to take the test, Mr. Skinner, my manager, has to schedule you for it. Ah, Mr. Skinner, Martin rolled his eyes. I have to confess, he didn't make a very good first impression. Oh, he can be a little gruff at times, but he's not that bad deep down. He keeps pictures of his cat on his desk. I mean, 
How mean-spirited can a man truly be if he has a picture of his cat on his desk? Anyhow, Mr. Skinner wouldn't schedule tests unless he thought an employee was serious about banking principles, economics, etc. He used to be an economics professor or something back in the day. He's always grilling us on economic news. Us tellers call it our daily pop quiz. It's usually some random questions about Keynesian economics or Fed policy or marginal utility and value theory, stuff like that. Even if you didn't need to know that for the test, that doesn't seem fair. Well, maybe, maybe not, but I figured Mr. Skinner just wants to see who has a head for financial issues, you know, promote the worthy employees, not the slackers. I wanted to prove that I was that worthy employee, so I read the books and listened to the financial news, stuff like that. Ouch. Didn't that turn your brain to mush? Susan laughed. Well, at first, but it got better. Once you get past all of the silly jargon, it starts to make more sense. I tried to be ready for his pop quiz questions. So, were you ready? She partially concealed a beam of pride. Well, I guess. Mr. Skinner thought so. He scheduled me to take the associate's test tomorrow. I'm so excited and nervous at the same time. I really want to move up. I could use the pay raise. Martin frowned. But wait, if you become an associate, you won't be at the window to take my deposits on Mondays. I'll have to go to Angry Eyes. Angry Eyes? You mean Lori? You call Lori Angry Eyes? Well, not to her face, only to myself, or, okay, Brian, too, but that's all. You have to admit, she has seriously angry-looking eyebrows. No, she, well, maybe a little, but still. That's not very nice. The corners of her mouth betrayed a suppressed smile. She can be a little cranky sometimes. Does she have a picture of her cat on her teller window? Susan chuckled. Oh, no, Lori doesn't like animals. Well, there you go, Martin continued. So I don't know if I'm liking this news about you being in a cubicle and, and I'll have to face angry eyes every Monday. They walked without words for about a block. After a long pause, Susan offered, But if you ever had any questions about your account... Well, here we are at North Station, Martin said. Crowds are pretty thick here, too. Guess this is where we part ways. Susan looked down. Yeah, I, I guess so. Martin felt a bit sad that they would have to part ways. Then he felt guilty for it. He had no business enjoying her company. Looking over her shoulder distracted him from his guilt. The platforms at North Station were crowded, like a refugee ship's deck. He stood on tiptoes to see over the cars in the parking lot. Oh, hold on a minute. He climbed up the Jersey barrier for a better look. Where are the trains? What trains? Any trains. There aren't any. There's all kinds of people waiting on the platforms, but no trains. All the years I've ever driven by North Station, I don't think I've ever seen all of the tracks empty. There's always at least one or two trains. He hopped down and sat on the barrier. First, his alternative for the bus fell through. Now it looked like his alternative plan for the train was falling through, too. Now that you mention it, neither have I, said Susan. This kind of ruins my plan to catch a train. You gotta have trains for that. Maybe they're just running late. You could wait for one. Martin rubbed the back of his neck. I don't think so. I'm not keen on waiting. Well, why not? she asked. I don't like the idea of waiting. I could be sitting there all day and for nothing if no trains ever came. 
Oh, okay, but if you don't want to take a train, then what else are you going to do? There's no tea or buses, and cabs are useless. Martin sat on the Jersey barrier in silence while his mind searched for any other alternative besides the one symbolized by the pack on his back. Try to buy a bicycle? Hmm, where? Bum a ride, he thought. That might work. Do people pick up hitchhikers anymore? He hadn't hitchhiked since college. He unzipped a little pocket on his pack and pulled out a small folded map. He had highlighted I-93 in yellow marker and the Bunker Hill Bridge to his usual exit in New Hampshire. He imagined hitchhiking up 93 to get his truck. It was a hybrid of his original plan to walk home, but with much less walking, if he could convince someone to give him a ride. On either side of the bold yellow line were thin lines in red pencil, marking out alternative side roads in case 93 was blocked. He stood up and adjusted his backpack straps on his shoulders. Looks like I'm back to my old plan B, walking home, just like you are. Oh, okay, well, how far do you have to walk? Well, it is a bit of a hike. Walking to New Hampshire still sounded outlandish, even to him, and it was his plan. He was certain it would sound absurd to her, and he wasn't eager to sound absurd in front of her. Guess we better get moving, he tried to sound enthusiastic, mostly to encourage himself. You said that in the summer you walked home from the bank. Which way did you go? Susan looked around to get her bearings. Mmm, I'd go up that way and take the bridge past the Museum of Science, then over that long bridge past the college, up to Rutherford Circle. It's not the shortest route, but it's a lot nicer than going over the rail yards. Ah, that's north-ish. Martin studied his map. Works for me. Mind if I tag along with you for a little while longer? That'd be okay, I guess. She suppressed a smile. Martin liked the idea of continuing in her company, but then felt guilty again at the pleasure. He mollified his guilt. It's just a few more blocks. It's not a big deal. Traffic in the intersection near the river were jammed, too. Pedestrians zigzagged through the cars like nervous lab mice. Martin noticed many of the drivers had the usual traffic jam body language. Rapid arm flailing, leaning forward to shout at their windshields, pounding on their steering wheels. Martin had sat through many a three-hour commute and had not seen drivers quite so testy so quickly. Maybe when there's an obvious reason for slow traffic, like snow or rain, people accept the delays better. There's no good reason now, so tempers are short. Once Martin and Susan got onto the left side of the long bridge, there was no need to deal with traffic for several blocks. Susan pointed up at the people leaning over the balcony railings of the tall apartment buildings. Boy, I'm sure glad I'm only on the second floor. Can you imagine what it must be like for these poor people without elevators? Ten, twelve flights of stairs each way? That would really stink. Oh, yeah. I wonder how long those tall buildings like these can keep water pressure, Martin wondered out loud. I suppose when the water does run out, at least they've got a water source nearby. Not that you'd want to drink Charles River water. Perhaps if they had one of those really good filters, still, they'd have to carry water up all of those stairs. What? Why would they do that? Oh, well, never mind. I was just thinking out loud. She shrugged it off. So I took your deposits every Monday, and I always wanted to ask you what kind of business Ed Logics is. Yeah, it's kind of hard to describe. We make corporate and educational apps for schools and companies or special events. You're a programmer? Martin chuckled. Well, I used to code. 
but the past few years I've become more of a researcher. We've got a couple of wonderkinder who now crank out the code at warp speed. Things change so fast in development, I'm not so cutting edge anymore. Research? Yeah, I look up the content, the words, the pictures, history, famous people, geography, data, stuff like that. Like for games? Oh, nothing quite so fun. Usually it's boring corporate stuff, like the one we finished this summer, Con Tracker. It was for a shipping company. Most of it was a pretty front end for accessing the company's database for shipping containers, rates, schedules, routes, all really boring stuff. Brian sold them on jazzing it up a bit by adding a fun layer of explorer's roots, you know, Columbus, Magellan, Cabot, guys like that. Brian's idea was that maybe people would think it was cool that their shipping container would follow the same route as Cabot. It's things like that. The client liked the idea, so I got to research all the explorer. Sounds fascinating. Martin smiled skeptically. I like to think so, but most people I talk to about my work develop a deep glaze, darn near comatose. It's the sort of fluffy stuff that only nerdy education directors or PhD types think is fascinating. Susan smiled. Huh, I think you just call me nerdy, or a PhD type. Well, I'll go with the latter. They pushed through the students milling around on the sidewalks in front of the community college. Most of them stared at their phones, more robots waiting in vain for instructions from the mothership. Some of them were talking on their phones. Maybe they were getting through. Martin tapped his phone number in and listened to the same circuit's busy recording. He tried to pull up a news site, but only got a spinning wheel and server-not-found messages. I've got some signal, but no lines are open yet. Does yours work? Susan tried her phone. No, I get a recording to try again later. Text messages might get through, so if you wanted to let someone know you're headed home, it might be good to do it soon. Good idea. She began tapping. If my dad hears that Boston is had a blackout, he'll get all worried. Here I'm 35 years old, but in his mind, I'm forever six. That used to bother me, but now I think it's kind of cute. There, it says, message sent. Your folks live in the area, Martin asked. He wondered why she did not text whoever was waiting for her at home in Somerville, but quickly shut down that line of curiosity. It was none of his business. We used to live out north of Turner's Falls, in western Mass when I was a kid, but after I went to college, they moved out to Ohio. She put her phone away. That's it? One text? Well, I don't want to sound like I'm stereotyping or anything, but I thought girls had zillions of friends they texted back and forth with all the time. Not this girl. Besides, I'm not into texting all that much. I prefer face-to-face. -face. That's why I like my bank job. I'm hearing sirens mixed in with all the honking, Martin said. Police cars, maybe? Yes, I do, too. They don't sound like police cars, though. Fire trucks is my guess, said Martin. Look across the river. They had walked clear of the tall shraft building, leaving a clear view of the mystic power station across the river. Black smoke rose from the base of one of the white metal buildings. That's not coming from the smokestacks. They must have had an equipment fire in there. You think that's why the power went out? A fire at the power station? Susan's voice carried a hint of hope. Seems like that's something fixable, right? They could have it back by morning? I don't want to be a wet blanket, but I don't see how a fire at Mystic Station would take down Chicago or L.A. too. Might be related, but it's got to be bigger than just fire at Mystic. <laughs> well, I can still hope you're wrong. Susan stopped at the edge of the curb. Well, this is Rutherford Circle, 
This is where I go left, up that way. Which way do you go now? Actually, I hadn't thought about it too much. Been too busy talking. Martin surveyed the low skyline, devoid of useful landmarks. North, generally. There's 93. I'm going to try hitching on 93. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's not legal. But these are desperate times. Hitching beats walking. And I'm more likely to find a longer ride on 93 than down here on the surface roads. Which aren't moving anyhow. What about you? How much farther up that way do you have to go? Oh, not far at all. I live on Wheeler Street. She pointed under the elevated deck of 93. Maybe just a half dozen blocks. Half a dozen blocks sounded like a lot of exposure to angry, impatient people. He felt a Boy Scout's obligation to escort her home. He was about to offer to escort her home, but stopped. Years of feminist browbeating had made chivalry old-fashioned and politically incorrect. Despite all of that, chivalry within Martin refused to go away. Tell you what, I could walk you to your door just to make sure that you get across all of the crazy traffic and stuff, if you want. Susan's smile was gone. That won't be necessary. Oh, great job, bozo, Martin berated himself. Now she thinks you're some sleazy stalker weirdo. I'm not trying to get all forward or anything. It's just that, well, people are being kind of, well, cranky today, like that guy back behind the W.B. Mason truck. I'd feel better knowing you got home okay before I headed on. That's all. Nothing else. Honest. She still looked reluctant. With chivalry expunged from the culture, men were left with only one sinister motivation for being nice to a woman. Noble intentions had to buck a hundred years of feminist diatribe. He surrendered with a sigh. But you're probably right. Well, take care. Hopefully see you around the bank sometime soon. Martin expected to see Susan turn, perhaps with a polite wave, and hurry away, having escaped the clutches of a sleazy stalker. Instead, she stared into his eyes for a long moment. He wondered if it was better for suspects in a police lineup to maintain or to avoid eye contact. The furrows disappeared from her forehead. She glanced around at the noisy traffic and congestion. A burst of honking and shouting underscored his point. Well, I guess people have been a little weird today, but I don't want you to be going out of your way. Oh, no bother at all. Martin felt a rush of relief, like when he needed just one more act of kindness for his citizenship merit badge, and old Mrs. Nymore finally agreed to let him rake her leaves. Susan shrugged, acceptance, and they set out on Washington Street. I'll veer off whenever you want. You just say when. Totally up to you, added Martin, trying to sound indifferent and as uncreepy as he could. Oh, okay. Within the regular chorus of honking, the wail of sirens grew louder. Some sounded like police sirens, or more like ambulances, or some other emergency vehicles. Not a good day to be trying to rush to the hospital, said Martin. Well, that's for sure. Say, this is a neat-looking old neighborhood you have here. Bowfront Queen Anne's, some Greek revivals, and there's a classic mansard. Cool, look at that, a gothic across the way there. All very quaint, said Martin. You researched old house styles too? Susan asked. No, it's just one of my nerdy hobbies. I grew up in a cookie-cutter subdivision where all the houses looked alike, so these old house styles always fascinated me. The narrow streets around here are kind of old world, too. Of course, that means it doesn't take more than a couple of cars to completely choke them off. Where does everyone think they're going? Well, I don't know, said Susan. Judging from the bundles and boxes strapped on their roofs, I guess they're trying to go stay at a friend's or a relative's house for a while. But from what you said, they won't have any power either. 
Susan and Martin threaded through the jumble of cars at one intersection, then another. Do you live in one of these neat old houses? Martin asked. That would be so cool. I do. It is kind of cool. It's a really cute Victorian, blue with white gingerbread trim. I was lucky to get it. When I was, well, looking for an apartment. I didn't have a lot of time, so I couldn't be too choosy. Most of the places I looked at were pretty rough or in a sketchy area. Or way out of my price range. Then I saw the listing for this one online, and I jumped at it. My apartment is on the second floor, just three small rooms and not much of a view of anything, but the kitchen has pine wainscoting and, and chair rails. I was totally sold, just from the pictures. Martin thought she must not be too worried that he was a shady creeper, or else she would not have described her house to him. Sounds charming. It is. Still, it has its downsides. Next door is an old ugly triple-decker that they rent out to college students. The boys on the second floor can be pretty obnoxious at times. They like their loud parties late into the night. But that's enough about them. What about your house? She asked. You never said where you were going, just north. Oh, well, I kind of have a plain white house, uh, not old or quaint. No, 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 that's not what I meant. Where is your house? How far do you have to walk? Martin's face felt hot. He felt embarrassed at his plan to walk home. He felt foolish at being only partially prepared for it. He had never hiked that far before, and had only vaguely figured he would just deal with whatever came up when he got to it. As far as a plan goes, it sounded pretty half-baked at best, or closer to stupid. His ego whispered that it was a prime time to lie. He could just say anything, that he lived in Winchester or Stoneham or any place up the road. What did it matter? He could lie to alcoholic panhandlers. He could lie to pushy bank managers. He hardly knew Susan, yet somehow he felt uncomfortable lying to her. Um, New Hampshire? He winced. Wait, what? Susan stopped and grabbed Martin by the arm. You're going to try to walk to New Hampshire? Well, not if I can hitchhike most of the way. But still, New Hampshire? Well, you say it like it's the North Pole or something. It's only 50 miles. <laughs> only 50 miles, she mocked his tone. Oh, sure, totally doable, Martin tried to sound like it was old hat, although he had never done it before. Even if I had to walk all the way, which I hope not to, 50 miles at 3 miles an hour would be only 16 hours. I'll grant you I won't be able to keep that pace for 16 hours straight. So maybe it'll take a couple of days. I'll camp out on some night under the stars. How bad is that? Regardless, I am not sleeping in my office again. So sleep in a hotel instead. Walk to New Hampshire? That sounds crazy and dangerous. Hotel? No, I want to get out of town, not find someplace else to stay in it. Susan continued her scolding tone. I'll admit, sleeping in an office doesn't sound all that appealing, but walking 50 miles, that sounds... That, that sounds... She was stuck for stronger words. That just sounds crazy. Well, it's not that sleeping in my office would be all that bad by itself. It's just that this time, I've had this little feeling in the back of my head that staying in the city is a bad idea. Given the scope of this outage, I feel like if I don't get out now, I may not get out later. And why not? With her hands on her hips, she was clearly expecting a darn good reason. Martin felt cornered and looked away. He had never articulated his concerns out loud to anyone so he had no well-practiced lines or phrases. Well, it's nothing I can put into words easily, but more like a collection of little things, like 
Like after Katrina, officials talked about what a headache it was with all of those suddenly homeless people to deal with. That whole Superdome thing looked far worse than any night under the stars. Or Hurricane Rita, with those thousands of people stranded on the highways for days. And then there was the marathon bombing and all the travel restrictions and the city in lockdown, authorities telling everyone to shelter in place. That's all fine if you're already home, but at the office? And there's other stuff too, but it all boils down to a feeling that if I don't get out of the city quickly, I might not be able to get out at all. Martin looked at her and forced a feeble smile. His explanation did not sound as compelling out loud as it did in his mind. I suppose that still sounds kind of nuts. You're right, it kind of does. Her tone was softer. She pointed to the gridlock in the streets. But given how traffic keeps jamming up, no one else is getting out of the city anyhow. That's why I plan to keep moving. Get as far as I can before dark. But the first order of business is to get you home. Then I can get started hitchhiking. They walked without speaking for several blocks. Martin broke the silence, pointing to a plume of black smoke rising over the rooftops. Really a bad day to have a fire. I doubt the fire trucks could ever get up these blocked, narrow streets. Susan looked at the smoke for a moment, then her face went pale. That's coming from near my house. She bolted and ran. Martin ran behind her. He could hear sirens in the distance, but he could also see another plume of black smoke rising farther south. Were the trucks headed for this fire or that one? The siren sounded roughly in between them. As they rounded the corner onto Wheeler Street, Susan stopped. Oh, thank God. It's not my house. It's the triple-decker. They ran along the opposite side of the street. A crowd of neighbors had gathered there, gawking blankly as if the fire was some street theater. Martin and Susan stood and watched for a few minutes, too. Fire filled the second-floor deck, curling up to consume the third-floor deck. Thick smoke poured out of the second-floor windows. Martin turned to Susan. I really don't think the fire department is going to get here very soon. Look how those sparks are carrying. The way those flames are spreading, your house might go up, too. Susan gasped. It can't. This is, this is all I have. Maybe we better run in and save some of your stuff, just in case. Martin pointed to the embers floating down under the roof of the Victorian. Susan let out a little scream and then rifled through her purse for a key. They ran up the wooden porch steps, through the heavy door, into the switchback stairway. She struggled to get a key in the lock. She pushed the door open, ran in, but halted in the middle of the living room. What do I save? Where, where do I start? Well, start with things you can't replace. Important papers, things like that. I'll go grab some clothes out of your closet, just in case. Martin rushed into the bedroom while Susan plucked family photos from the mantel and shoved them into a canvas shopping bag. Martin threw open the closet doors, grabbed an armful of clothes from the bar, and tossed them on the bed. The gap in the closet revealed some luggage. He opened the roller bag on the bed and tried to fill it with roughly equal quantities of shirts, pants, and sweaters. The roller bag filled up quickly. He pulled out a duffel bag from the closet. He yanked open the dresser drawer, intent to scoop out socks and things. His hands froze in mid-scoop. Bras and panties. It had not dawned on him that volunteering to get her clothes would mean bras and panties. He hardly knew Susan. Chivalry had no business touching her underwear. Why had he not thought there would be bras and panties? He was startled out of his paralysis when Susan rushed into the room. I've got my photos and papers. Martin, feeling both relieved and guilty, quickly pulled back his hands. He pointed to the bed. I got as much as I could in your roller bag. Here, 
I'll hold this duffel while you scoop out some whatever you want from this dresser. He was content to hold the bag, but still had to look away while she filled it. Susan grabbed a thick sweater from the pile on the bed. They hauled their burdens into the living room. My dishes? Replaceable? Yes. Then never mind. Martin pointed to the bathroom. Prescription meds? None. Okay, good. Man, it's getting warm in here. Winter coat? Boots? Closet. Susan flung open the door. She draped a long coat over her arm and grabbed a pair of boots. The side window shattered from the heat. Come on, we've got to get out of here. Martin pushed Susan toward the door. The stairway was starting to fill with lazy wisps of smoke. Once back across the street, in the cool air, there was nothing much to do but watch the fire among the rest of the neighbors. The radiant heat was becoming uncomfortable, even from across the street. A little balding man came up to Susan sheepishly, with a heavy Portuguese accent. He said, apologetically, It was those boys. Has no power. They, they tried to cook on the porch. Deep fry grill. Grill fall on sofa. Big fire. Boys try to put out. He looked to his right. A young man stood among the spectators, staring in shock, with his hands wrapped in towels. Another young man stood beside him, with a red face and no hair on the front of his head. The bald man shook his head. No can put out. This can't be happening. It just can't, Susan said to no one in particular. My house can't burn down. Where will I? Why hasn't somebody done something? Where's the fire department, for God's sake? She paced up and down the sidewalk. How can they not see this fire? I hear some sirens, offered Martin. I'll go see if they're coming. He trotted to the end of the block. At the intersection, he peered up and down the street. It was full of gridlock cars and many pedestrians, but no fire trucks. The sirens didn't sound any closer than before. He walked back to Susan, not eager to bear the bad news. She was rushing from one bystander to the next, half shouting at them and flailing her arms. The bystanders gave little response, as if they did not understand her or were deaf. Martin thought some of them had a it's-not-my-job sort of look on their faces. They were there to watch, not do anything. He was still a dozen yards away when Susan turned and their eyes met. There was a flash of wild expectant hope on her face. Martin's stomach nodded. Such a pleading look for rescue, and all he had was bad news. He shook his head. Susan slowly collapsed, as if she were an inflatable lawn Santa whose blower had been unplugged. Martin rushed over to help her up off her knees. She stared blankly. The roof of the old Victorian burned vigorously. Then flames crept down the siding. Through the crackle and roar of the fire, sirens continued to wail in the distance. No fire trucks came. The street-side windows burst. Billows of gray smoke poured out, followed by licks of orange. Susan's shoulders began to quiver with silent sobs.